This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho, and I am a nutritional therapy practitioner. I work with clients to get to root cause healing, and oftentimes that is healing the gut with a meat-based elimination diet. Today, I am excited to share this talk with you guys. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Al Dannenberg. Dr. Al Dannenberg is a periodontist. He knows all things about teeth, but still focuses on holistic health in terms of nutritional healing with the oral microbiome, as well as the gut microbiome. This talk is very fascinating. It talks all about oral health and how oral health can be affected by the gut microbiome and then how it could be a vicious cycle. I look forward to you listening to this conversation. If you've ever had any dental work, including root canals, wisdom teeth pulled, and any other gum disease, you probably want to take a closer look and get out a paper and pen to listen to how to find a holistic healthcare dentist. All right, let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Al. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I am very excited for people to hear your journey and then us talking about all things oral microbiome, um, oral health. So if you can introduce introduce yourself for the people listening and watching this interview. Sure. So um, I can go way, way back. I'm 74 years old, so there's a lot to talk about. But uh, thanks for the opportunity, number one. I am a periodontist, meaning that I am a specialist in dentistry that treats gum disease and the related structures of the gum and the tooth root and the jawbone. Um, When I got to uh, dental school, got out of dental school, 72-ish, got my graduate and um, specialized training by 74. Uh, that's 1974, by the way. And then uh, for the last 44 years or the 44 years following that or so, I was in active practice, clinical practice, doing periodontal therapy. I was a very conventional periodontist in those days, doing the things that every periodontist is trained to do, and then became much more nutritionally oriented, um, maybe by six, seven, eight years or so before I finally retired in September, 2018. And what got you into the nutritional side? Like what made you decide to shift? Sure. So, um, you know, we all think that we're very healthy until we realize we're not very healthy. So I thought I was very healthy. I did. um, I I ate a lot of fiber, lots of carbs. Um, I exercised 
maybe five or six times a week. Um, I weighed a little bit more than I should. And at the age of 59, I had a stroke. Mm. Wow. You know, that's a, that's a, a game changer. Um, my conventional medicine doctors saved my life. They put me on seven medications to take for the rest of my life. And I was not satisfied with that. I tried to find out from them what caused my stroke. And they said, basically, you know, you have to eat healthier and get exercise. <laughs> I thought I was doing that. So they didn't have any answers. I went to certain organizations like the American Cancer Society and Diabetic Association, whatever, to figure out what they were doing for their people. I kind of figured what they were doing. I got into that groove. And by the age of um, 66, I was doing everything that they said, these organizations said would be more healthy. I lost a few pounds. I was still on seven medications. And then I found a course for healthcare professionals about nutrition at the Kropalo Center for Yoga and Health of all places. So it was a five-day course. I went to the course. I'm 66 years old at this point. Um, and I learned about something I never had heard about before, and that was paleo diet and lifestyle. Wow, it blew me away. And it made so much more sense than everything I was doing. And I called my wife and I said, you know, um, coming home, let's make some changes. And after the five days of the course, I, I got home and uh, we bat heads a little bit. And she said, I'll give you 30 days. So I, we cleared out all the non-paleo type foods in the house. And basically we had no food. So we, we went shopping for organic food. We found out there was such a thing as a farmer's market and we started to eat paleo. But here's the interesting thing. I'm 66 years old now. By the time I'm 68 years old, that paleo diet and lifestyle changed my life. I got off all seven medications. I lost over 30 pounds without even trying. And I thought something is right here, but no one else understands it. Right. So I began to incorporate this nutritional philosophy with my periodontal patients. And the few that accepted it, of course, I was a traditional periodontist. So the guys and gals that came to me looked for treating their gum disease. They didn't want to hear about diet or, or nutrition. But the few that wanted to really ex experience tremendous healing and actually some conventional treatment wouldn't be necessary in their mouths because they healed themselves. Absolutely amazing. So that's how I got into nutrition and treating periodontal disease. And that was about seven issue years or so before I retired. I'm curious, what, what were the big changes from um, prior to eating paleo? That What was the dietary changes? Well, certainly I was eating much, much, much more carbs, lots of fruit, um, I would cheat constantly, but I didn't realize I was cheating so much. Um, but I was eating popcorn and many, many types of non-gluten grains. It was a lot of carbs, um, a lifestyle that was somewhat active aerobically, but I didn't understand the basis of high-intensity interval training and a few other things. And incorporating that concept and literally getting rid of those carbs, those unhealthy carbs, made the whole difference. 
Okay. And now do you eat more of a meat-based diet more than a paleolithic? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And and I, I want to define a meat-based diet because everybody I talk to thinks, oh, I'm eating, I'm eating ribeye and eggs all the time. Well, that's not true. Okay. And that's not a meat diet, as you know. <laughs> meat fiber is critical, but if you're on only a meat fiber diet, you're not going to be healthy. You need to eat the organs even more than the, the muscle meat. You need to eat the collagenous material. You need to eat all this saturated fat. And actually, you need to eat more grams of fat per grams of protein to get into a state of ketosis so that you become metabolically flexible, which is what our primal ancestors did for two and a half million years until maybe 10,000 years ago. So we, we, un, we, our bodies know how to metabolize fat and metabolize carbs, but when we are carbohydrate dependent and addicted, we don't allow our bodies to break down fat cells. And because of that, we, we are not metabolically flexible and our immune systems suffer, our gut microbiome suffers, and all chronic diseases become prevalent. It makes sense. Um, I agree with you. So do you eat fish on uh, with your... Yeah. So if I were to look at seven days a week, I eat maybe five to six days, primarily beef and lamb products. Okay. When I'm not eating collagenous material or organs, I eat a variety of desiccated organs that come from grass-fed, grass-finished, New Zealand pastured cattle. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm balancing all the nutrients. And as you know, every nutrient our body really requires is in a well-designed carnivore or animal-based diet. And that's what I do. As long as you're drinking natural water that has trace minerals, that's another critical element, which is generally not very well understood. Yes. Um, let's shift to the discussion mm-hmm. on oral health. Um, sure. What makes up um, good, I guess, oral health? Um, there are a lot of carnivores that say my oral health has changed eating a meat-based diet. The thought is that with lots, um, a lot less carbohydrates that we may need to brush less, floss less. Um, just your opinions overall about what makes a good you know, oral hygiene. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Great question. So let's talk about oral hygiene because oral hygiene is a very important element to oral health, but it is absolutely not the critical element. So oral health means good oral hygiene. What you want to do is reduce unhealthy dental plaque and make the organisms in your mouth, this huge garden of bacteria in your mouth, Uh, homeostatic, in balance. Um, So good oral health would require, good oral hygiene would require cleaning at the gum line, the cheek surface and the tongue surface of teeth, where unhealthy dental plaque may be accumulated. 
cleaning between the teeth, not only with dental floss, but little cleaning devices that are made with silicone that are much better cleaning at the gum line where the tooth meets the gum to remove unhealthy dental plaque. And also it's important to clean the surface of the tongue from unhealthy bacterial accumulation and breaking down of food particles. And you can do that with a tongue scraper, but it's easy to do with an inverted spoon, take it back in your th- uh, um, tongue, go to the base of the tongue almost where you're going to gag and pull it forward. And you'll see a little whitish film fluid that collects in the bowl of the spoon. And if you want to be a little geeky and maybe a little um, weird, you can take that liquid and put it on the on your hand and let it dry and take a smell. And that's what your bad breath smells like. So 80% or so of bad breath comes from the top surface of your tongue. That's how you clean your mouth. You do not want to use antimicrobial toothpastes. You do not want to use binders in toothpaste that bind minerals. You do not want to use any antimicrobial mouthwashes. You'll kill bad bacteria but you'll kill a lot of good bacteria. And I've emphasized that dental plaque is healthy until it's not. Let me give you an idea what that means, if you want. Yes, I was just about, well, I was going to also ask you how we collect plaque, right? So how does it even start? And if you want to just kind of explain all of that. Well, the plaque, of course, is bacteria. So bacteria and dental plaque, the, the dental plaque is a biofilm around the tooth structure where the tooth meets the gum and it consists of maybe um, two to three hundred or so species of bacteria and there are maybe up to 700 species of bacteria that may be in your mouth. But here's an interesting point. Think about where in your body a hard structure pierces the epithelial or skin tissue and embeds itself in sterile tissue or sterile bone anywhere in the body. And the only place is the mouth. It's the tooth. The tooth pierces the gum, goes into sterile bone, and it sits there. It is slippery, it's wet, and if the bacteria in your mouth, which are your mouth is loaded with bacteria, had a chance, it would get onto that slippery, wet surface, slide down into the jawbone, necrose the bone or kill the bone, and you die. Our species would have never evolved. Well, it doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. There are a lot of uh, innate immune system cells are under the gum. They're killing bacteria. They're doing a lot of things. There are structures under the gum to prevent the bacteria from getting under. But there is a primary first line of defense, and that's the natural biofilm that has been created at the tooth gum margin. That's dental plaque. Dental plaque has three purposes. Like I said, it has two or 300 different species of bacteria. It's all different for everybody. Dental plaque actually, because of these bacteria, produce hydrogen peroxide and in different concentrations that kill potentially pathogenic bacteria that lives in your mouth and the saliva in your mouth. So it prevents those bacteria from getting into the gum margin to slide down the tooth because it kills them. It also has chemical buffers in the dental plaque that prevent the pH, the acidity of the dental plaque, from going below 5.5 for any length of time. Because if it gets more acidic than 5.5 for any extended period of time, you'll have root decay. So dental plaque actually prevents root decay. 
And in addition, it's acting like a gatekeeper. It allows the nutrients that are in the saliva, not just that you're eating, that's not the way nutrients get into the dental plaque, it, because your, den, your saliva has all these bioavailable nutrients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that fluid can, af- can flow through the dental plaque and the dental plaque will allow the minerals that are necessary to go into the root to reharden them and remineralize the tooth as necessary. So dental plaque is critical. We can see there is a skull that is 300,000 years old. It's the oldest Homo sapien skull ever found maybe two or three years ago. And that skull has all of its, uh, uh, it's the lower skull, the lower jaw has all 16 teeth. The teeth are very flattened. So the, the individual lived a long enough time to really grind their teeth. And because all 16, 16 teeth were there, the wisdom teeth were there, that person I'm guessing is aged anywhere from 25 years old or older. But if you look at the jawbone, there is no bone disease. If you look at the teeth, even though they're very severely worn down, there's no tooth decay. But if you look in between the teeth, you see this junk deposit, and this is calculus or tartar, which is the calcified remnants of dental plaque. So our ancestors had plenty of dental plaque, but they didn't have tooth decay most for the majority of the time. And they didn't have bone disease for the majority of the time because all of this dental plaque was in a state of balance it just calcified with calcium and other minerals over time. So if you're saying that some of the plaque is normal and protective almost, um, why, why is it now a issue um, in modern day, right? We have so many cavities. and of course. So much, um, of course, you're right. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, 92 to 93% of the U.S. population has some form of tooth decay or has had tooth decay that's been filled and has some form of gum inflammation or bleeding gum tissue. That is an epidemic. And why is that the case? Because it wasn't that way when our primal ancestors lived. And it definitely is related to the gut microbiome. Most people have an unhealthy garden of bacteria in their gut because of the foods we're eating, the chemicals we're eating, the stress we're experiencing, emotional stress, poor exercise, over-exercise, lack of good sleep. There are so many factors, dirty electromagnetic fields you and I are looking at um, right now. There are so many individual factors that affect our gut microbiome, but all of these factors influence the health of this wonderful garden of bacteria in our gut and over a period of time, potentially pathogenic bacteria can overgrow. And when they overgrow, it affects the lining of the gut and you develop what's called a leaky gut. Of course, you know that. And in addition, it compromises the immune system. Here's the problem. When you have a leaky gut, certain elements are getting into the bloodstream and it goes to every organ system in the body, including the mouth, especially what's called lipopolysaccharides, LPS. They're extremely toxic and they cause dysbiosis or an imbalance of the bacteria in other organs as well as the mouth, changing the healthy dental plaque into unhealthy dental plaque. And in addition to that, 
the immune system is compromised because it's always fighting this unhealthy gut microbiome. It is not on its top game. And therefore, when you have a problem in the mouth or other areas of your body, it can't mount an important defense or an efficient defense to take care of your health. And then when we eat certain foods like sugars and whatever, that contributes to the potential pathogenic bacteria to overgrow even more. And then you get this dental plaque that's unhealthy, causing more acid-producing bacteria that overwhelms the healthy dental plaque and it gets into the tooth and causes decay. It creates other pathogenic bacteria that causes gum inflammation that never would be there, eventually getting under the gum and destroying the jawbone. And then you have active tooth decay and active periodontal disease. And if that, at that point, you would treat the gut and make the gut extremely healthy, it would be too late because you've already have a second nidus of infection in the mouth. And that's why the mouth is critical because that has to be treated. The important thing is the mouth actually is the first visible sign that you have dysbiosis in the gut. It's interesting because um, I work with a lot of clients with gut imbalances and, um, you know, as they're healing their gut, they still have imbalances in their body. And so some of them have been looking into cavitations and like oral microbiome health. And they found that in some of the pockets with their wisdom teeth, um, there's a bacteria growing because now there's no nerve endings. And so they, it's like a free space that, you know, this bacteria can grow and, um, some of them have tested on it and they found that there's like parasites in there and eggs and they just don't feel anything because there's no nerves and it's kind of scary. And so the thought is that, you know, we swallow liters of saliva every day with our bacteria, our digestive enzymes and such. And so I started wondering, well, if we kind of know that the gut works from north to south, right? So you're, you see food, you salivate, there's your digestive enzymes in your mouth, the salivary amylase, and then it goes down, you swallow your, um, your saliva, and then you have your digestive enzymes down south. So is it a, does the problem start in the oral microbiome and then goes to the gut and the gut has imbalances? But it sounds like from you, you're saying it's really the gut stems it. And then the gut primarily will start it okay. unless there is bad dentistry that's causing an inflammation in the mouth, like a filling that doesn't fit right, a broken filling, um, like you said, a cavitation and maybe failing root canals. We can talk about that because those are two huge problems. Once you get an active infection, just like a splinter in your finger, um, if you have a splinter in your finger and the inflammation is in your splinter, you know it didn't come from your gut. It's a splinter. And if you have an issue that it started in the mouth because of bad dentistry or broken teeth or whatever, then that is going to cause the problem and it will go back and forth. I will mention something that's very important, and that is swallowing saliva with bacteria is not a problem. We would never have evolved into our species if we were concerned or we were susceptible to swallowing microbes and get sick. We have an acidity in our gut, and this is very unique for humans. Not all primates, but humans have an acid stomach of a pH somewhere around 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, unless you have other issues. And that acid literally destroys the majority of pathogenic bacteria and microbes. And if it doesn't kill it, 
then the bile acids and the duodenum will take care of the rest. So you're not putting in microbes that are actually going to get into the small and large intestines and create all kinds of disease. Now, interestingly, the studies that have been published, which are very confusing, talking about P. gingivalis getting into the gut and causing periodontal disease, it could do that. I mean, um, gut dysbiosis from periodontal disease, it could do that from a systemic circulation, but not so much swallowing. The studies have been done on rats and mice and their mouth, I mean, their gut acid level is around three. So this bacteria is living in that environment. But if it were a human were to swallow that bacteria with an acid level of 1.2, 1.3 or whatever like that, it would kill that bacteria. So we have to be very careful when we're looking at studies of right uh, uh, rats and mice because rats and mice are not you and I. Right. But fortunately. Yes. And, and I agree with that. Um, the two things. So one is that a lot of people don't have enough of the acidic level for their pH in their gut, yes. um, their stomach. So that's a big issue, right? So that's how H yes. pylori, um, proliferates. That's how a lot of people, and especially a lot of people that take the Petsids, the Xantax, all of those, uh, proton pump inhibitors, all of those acid reflux medications, they're increasing their pH levels of their stomach. So it's not uncommon probably to see um, someone with the stomach pH of 3.0 just because of so much disease in our, um, I guess, our population. And then the second thing is some of the research says that um, the fluid will go through our lymphatic system and that's how it can affect the rest of the body. Yes. And, and that's another story. Absolutely. So <laughs> the lymphatic system is really going into the circulatory system eventually. So what you're swallowing is not so critical, but what is getting into your system otherwise is, and, and bacteria and inflammatory cytokines in your jaw and jawbone and gum tissues can get directly into the circulatory system by going through capillaries, the small capillaries in the bone that get into the other blood vessels. It can get into the lymph fluid in your jaw, draining to the lymph nodes, eventually getting into the uh, lymphatic system and then draining into the circulatory system. And here's another interesting fact that it can actually travel the nerve sheaths and go to other organs without ever crossing the lymphatic or circulatory system. So there are many, many thousands or more nerve fibers that are in your jaw. And these are little fibers that are coated almost like an electrical wire has a plastic coating. These nerve fibers have a myelin sheath. The myelin sheath actually can be the pathway, the highway for inflammatory elements and bacteria to go from one part of the body to another part of the body where it can be affecting other organs. That is probably, I'm not sure, I've, ta I've talked to a few Chinese medicine people, but it could very well be what the method of acupuncture to go, you know, the nerve traveling um, from body part to body part. Oh, right. So I heard that, um, I just heard this, the, some of the molars are connected to yeah. the large intestine. And then yeah. um, I think the wisdom teeth are connected to the small intestine. Um, 
So this, I think, is the actual um, biology and physiology of the system. It's the nerve myelin sheaths that travel, and it's the pathway for these bacteria and inflammatory cytokines and other chemical elements to get from one part of the body to the other part of the body without traveling the circulatory system or going through the lymph. So, you know, what I'm getting from you is obviously we need to focus on the gut and I'm a big fan of that, but you know, other than but not, o- not only because right. like I said, if you have a healthy gut, but you've already developed an unhealthy mouth, that mouth must be treated. Right. And so then the- you'll have a vicious cycle going back and forth. So both areas need to be treated. Okay. So how, how do we treat the, um, oral hygiene, oral health. Sure. Um, if sure. you can kind of just give general recommendations for that, and then we can talk about specifics about root canals, amalgams, and sure. stuff like that. So like I mentioned, you want to brush at the gum line so that you remove the unhealthy dental plaque. You brush into the gum tooth margin at a 45 degree angle using a soft bristle toothbrush horizontally, gently, and that will remove the unhealthy plaque. Cleaning in between the teeth with some dental floss to get maybe clumps of fiber that's between the contacts of the teeth, but using what's called TP Easy Picks, which are little silicone brush brushes that go between the gum and the tooth, rubbing the gum margin, and that removes the dental plaque and cleaning the tongue. That will take care of the unhealthy dental plaque. You have to have a diet that's not going to support the growth of pathogenic bacteria. So you have to reduce the carbs, especially the sugars. Um, And you have to reduce acid drinks, acid drinks like uh, kombucha is you think is a healthy drink. Well, kombucha is an extremely acid drink. Some people drink kombucha like they drink Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola. They drink it, they swish it in their mouth. They do it all the time. They sip on it all day long. And that's going to certainly demineralize the roots of the teeth and cause tooth decay. So those are the ways that you can maintain a healthy mouth. It's not difficult. I wrote a paper called Four Steps to a Healthy Mouth that go into the details of this. And I have some photographs in it to show how to clean it with the um, the, the methods that I just mentioned. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes. So thank you. Yeah. It's, it's a PDF that you can, your, your viewers can download. Sure. Okay. And then what about um, if you have gum disease or cavities or even amalgams. I mean, how, how do we then, if you already have some type of disease in your mouth, how do we go about treating? Well, of course you have to die. The, the disease has to be diagnosed properly. Right. So let's say you have gum disease. If it's just inflammation, which is called gingivitis, where the inflammation has not gotten under the gum into the bone. So there's no damage to the bone. Making your gut healthy and changing your diet will treat the disease. You'll cure your gingivitis, but you have to make the gut healthy and you have to stop unhealthy foods that you're eating. You may need a good cleaning, you know, tooth cleaning, but you won't need any more extensive treatment. If you have periodontitis, which is an infection that goes under the gum, it's different bacteria, the the inflammation in the gum, gingivitis, can change, it doesn't always, but can change to a more virulent bacteria, a more very unhealthy bacteria getting under the gum, literally decaying the jawbone. And that's creating significant problems and tooth decay and then infection that gets into the bloodstream. That needs to be treated very definitively. 
A deep cleaning called a scaling and root planing may be all that's necessary. Your mouth is numb. The hygienist cleans under the gum. It's not a cutting procedure. Mm -hmm. And that can take care of it. Again, your gut needs to be healthy or made healthy and your diet needs to be made healthy. But when there's really damage in the bone, the best methods today to regenerate jawbone that has been destroyed from periodontitis are laser treatments that use a wavelength of 1064 nanograms or a nanometer uh, wavelength that will actually stimulate the bone cells of the jaw to regrow and literally kills very specifically pigeon javalis, which is a very virulent bacteria causing periodontitis. It's an excellent procedure. Um, it's called LANAP, Laser Assisted New Attachment Procedure, L-A-N-A-P. It's been used and studied and written about all over the world. And it is probably the most cutting edge procedure today to regenerate jawbone. Wow. When I was using it for my six or so years before I retired, I was getting phenomenal results Patients, it's very patient-friendly. Then the next day, they go back to their normal routine. They don't have to have any narcotic medication. Um, very, very little pain. It's a, not a cutting procedure. It's a laser procedure. It's, it's a very efficient procedure to treat that disease. What about um, lately? I've been seeing um, toothpaste that has like uh, some type of chemical. I can't remember the name. I think it starts with an H. It's hydroxa something. Um, it's supposed to help remineralize your teeth. Um, yeah, this is a very interesting, these are nanoparticles of hydroxyapatite. There you go, okay. Um, so hydroxyapatite is the structure of the enamel. It's a crystalline structure. Um, nanohydroxyapatite has been shown to get into, impregnate itself into the tissues of the tooth and harden the root and prevent decay. It's used more holistically, replacing the concept of dental fluoride. Um, but there are other studies that I will tell you about that have nothing to do with dental studies, but has everything to do with nanoparticles that are cytotoxic getting into other cells because these nanoparticles are so small they get into the cell membrane, into the cytoplasm, and can destroy or damage the nuclear membrane, which is what it covers the nucleus of the cell and gets into the DNA and may have cytotoxic effects on the individual cells. And there are at least five or 10 papers that suggest that's a problem. And that is a concern of mine. I don't like nanoparticles that we can ingest or um, inhale because of that problem. Okay. So you wouldn't recommend any... I do not. <laughs> okay. I don't because I think that you can take care of it if you want to be more pro proactive, but it takes more of an effort. A lot of people want a pill to get healthy. They don't want to make yeah. an effort. If you tell them they're going to have to exercise, they're not interested. If you tell them they have to change their diet, they're not interested. But if you tell them, I'm going to give you a fantastic pill, it'll cost you $1,000 a day, but here's a pill and you don't have to work for it. That's all they want to do. Yeah. Those people I can help. And I'm not so sure that toothpaste is going to be that good for them either. Okay, fair enough. Um, can you talk about amalgams? You know, we talk a lot about how um, they're, you know, 
it's shown that amalgams cause mercury toxicity, how it can kind of pass <laughs> the, um, from mom to child. And so there are still people that um, get amalgams um, in their teeth when they have cavities. Um, what's a safe way to remove them? And what are your recommendations that if you do have a cavity, what to fill it with? Well, to answer your second question, what to fill it with, it really depends on the, the extent of damage, but I would never, ever use a mercury filling material in the mouth, period. Um, why would you put a known neurotoxic poison in your body, no matter how little you're putting in your body, it's cumulative. So the first time you take it, it's not going to cause you a problem, but if you continue to take it or it continues to ooze out of a tooth, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you've been living with that for 30 years, and all of a sudden you develop other chronic diseases, um, it's a little too late to say, oh, well, okay, let's get rid of this amalgam filling. Well, maybe it's good to get rid of it, but the damage has already been done. So there are composite restorations made of all kinds of types of dental plastics that are compatible. And there are actually two companies that do compatibility tests. They, you can have your blood drawn in the dental office or go to a blood draw um, clinic. And, and these two variety of labs will provide the, the, the tubes that they can utilize to test your blood to see if what the dentist wants to put in your tooth you're compatible with, or you would maybe possibly have a reaction to. It's not 100% accurate, but it is rel relatively accurate. And there are two companies right now in the United States. Uh, one is called BioCamp Labs. The other is Clifford Materials Reactive Testing. Those are methods to determine if the materials are going to be toxic or not toxic. But most of the composites today, these resin materials, are relatively non-toxic. Everything is toxic to some extent that's, you know, a foreign chemical, but it's, it's going to be relatively non-toxic. But amalgam is a different story. Mercury amalgam, mercury fillings create an, um, uh, an off-gassing of mercury, free mercury, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sometimes more than others. And that little bit may not be a problem if it were in an isolated environment for that period of time. But like I mentioned, these, these effects are cumulative. And studies have shown that it is a potential neurotoxin and hazard, and therefore I wouldn't want to have it in my mouth. How do you get rid of amalgams? They have to be removed carefully, or you'd better, you would be better off leaving them in than removing them improperly. Right. Because if you remove them improperly, a dentist were to take a drill and drill this out, all the, the vapor you would breathe, it would get into your um, tissues and, your, and uh, under your tongue, it would go directly into your blood supply, you would swallow it, it would be in the environment, in the dental operatory, all the staff would be exposed to this, and that would be very, very unhealthy. So there are ways, and there are a couple organizations that teach how dentists how to take amalgams out in a very biologically healthy way. But basically, a rubber dam, it's a, it's a piece of rubber 
that is placed around the tooth that is going to have an amalgam removed so that it isolates the tooth from the rest of the mouth and the oral airway space. And the, the, the amalgam is removed in large chunks if possible. A very, very high-powered suction machine is used to suck out all the vapor, lots of filtering um, mechanisms in the dental office. But prior to the procedure, the patient may rinse with um, a variety of binders that may bind to excess mercury that just might get into the oral cavity. So that's all protective for the individual. But it has to be done or you shouldn't remove the amalgams at all. And um, I believe there's like an organization or a type of um, name for the safety, safe mercury removal. Yeah. So one is called the IAOMT, the International Association of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, and the uh, IABDM, another organization that actually does training of dentists to remove amalgam safely and biologically. Okay, perfect. And I will put all of this in the show notes. Um, I just, as a tangent, I find it funny that we are so scared of eating fish for mercury content when a lot of, yeah, the bigger issue of mercury toxicity is actually from our teeth, um, from our moms that had that, um, or even from our vaccines. But I just... Find it funny. Oh, we're not going to talk about vaccines. <laughs> this will be pulled off of YouTube. So let's not oh, do that. I, no, right. no, no, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah. So the fish I would recommend certainly are wild caught salmon and wild caught sardines with skin on and bone in. Yeah. Same with me. Agree. I'm, yeah. I'm totally on board with you. Um, let's, so let's talk a little bit about root canals. Um, so there's a lot of um, kind of chatter in the space now in um, oral hygiene about how sometimes root canals are most root canals are done improperly. And then again, just like the wisdom teeth, there's like spaces left dead space where bacteria can grow. And then um, that may be the final root cause in terms of why you're not fully healing Um, Maybe you've worked on the gut microbiome, you've worked on your diet, but you're still not fully healing. And then it may be an area that we can look into if you can kind of talk a little bit about that for us. Well, that's true. First of all, a dentist that does a root canal is not purposefully not doing the root canal correctly. The problem is we're dealing with microorganisms and we don't have the technology to deal with such small animals and take care of them effectively. And then again, once that happens, the tooth is a dead tooth. So if it's a dead tooth that had no ability to produce toxic elements, I guess it wouldn't be so bad. But here's what generally happens. When a nerve is infected in the tooth and it has the blood vessels and lymphatic tissues and everything, cellular structures, and it dies, it necrosis, it dies, it has toxic elements that are being created, and it's pushed out through the tooth at the bottom of the root called the apex. But there are other what's called accessory canals, if you can imagine the limbs of a tree, lots and lots of thin limbs and thinner and thinner limbs. There are thinner and thinner little channels that go in the pulp nerve area of the tooth into the surrounding bone that supports structure the the um of the tooth and those canals become microscopic 
but the bacteria are microscopic also. So they leave these canals, they push the growing canals, they push themselves through the canals into the membrane supports the tooth root in the bone, and it's toxic in that environment. So the root canal, where they the dentist removes the infected um, tissue and puts a filling material in, is not capable physically, biologically capable to fill these microscopic tubules that go from that major nerve canal into the side of the tooth. Uh, where the periodontal ligament is and, and the bone. So that is an area where bacteria can grow. Um, frequently, the material that is used for the root canal could be toxic, and it could leak into the area um, around the bone. And the biggest problem is that you have no swelling and no pain, and you think everything is great. And the dentist doesn't look at it anymore because you're not complaining. And the x-ray may or may not show, so, so, uh, show something, but the dentist may say, well, it's a healing root canal. It's, it's healing. Well, how does he know it's healing or how does she know it's healing? What actually is happening is the immune system is being affected Again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There are toxic elements and bacteria, inflammation and infection getting out into this environment microscopically. The immune system is fighting to get this infection under control and it's failing. And this infection and inflammation gets into the bloodstream, gets into the lymph tissues, gets into the nerve canals, and it channels itself throughout the rest of the body, creating a chronic systemic inflammatory result, basically um, allowing other organs based on their genetic predisposition to break down, to become infected or inflamed and then chronic disease becomes prevalent. Our chronic disease in the United States is huge. The CDC says 60% of the U.S. population has at least one chronic disease, and I think they're underestimating it. One of every, uh, I mean, 70% of all deaths are related to chronic diseases. This is huge. This is disaster. And all of this could be a contributing factor. That's why SIBO maybe is never treated correctly, um, no matter what is done, because all this infection is constantly pouring into the body from the mouth, which nobody knows about. And the dentists that could diagnose it maybe don't know anything about the gut and, and the systemic circulation. And those functional medicine guys and gals that know a lot about the gut and systemic circulation don't know anything about the, the mouth. So the, these uh, healthcare professionals have to integrate their awareness and, and the ability to diagnose and treat it as a whole person, which we are. So for me, when I focus on gut health and I focus on, you know, healing the gut, changing the diet, at what point should I, you know, wonder, is it the, the teeth? So some of my initial um, questionnaires will include amalgams, but I don't ask about root canals. I don't ask about wisdom teeth pulled. But are those questions that I should always ask in the beginning? Well, let me give you an example of what I do with my consults. So, of course, I'm a licensed dentist. So, so what I do is I have them fill out a questionnaire, 60 medical dental questionnaire. I have them fill out a three-day food journal because I need to know what they're eating. Right. And it's amazing how many people tell you, 
they're eating a nutritious diet. And as soon as you show them what they're eating, they say, oh, my God. And then I have them send me their digital dental x-rays. I can see things on the x-rays. I can't make the diagnosis on the internet, but I can see things and direct them to biologically oriented dentists in their zip code area to further evaluate and do what is necessary to treat that infection or possibility. You can always do this. You can always ask a patient, do you have any bleeding in your mouth around your gum tissue? Now they'll say, well, not very often. Well, the fact is this, the gum tissue should never ever, ever bleed. If you were putting your makeup on in front of a mirror and a guy like myself is shaving in front of a mirror and all of a sudden you see a drop of blood come out of your ear, would you be concerned? Well, there, yeah, you would. But if you brush your teeth or you floss your teeth and you see a little pink on the toothbrush or you're spitting in the sink and you see a little pink, you're not concerned, especially because when you go to the dentist and you have your teeth clean and you think your mouth is healthy and you ask the hygienist, how do my gums look? And she'll tell you, oh, they really look good. It's just, you just have a little bleeding in this lower molar area. A little bleeding is infection. If you had a nail scrub brush and you scrubbed your nails and you saw blood coming out of the cuticles after you scrubbed your nails, would you be concerned? Well, you should be. And you should be concerned if your gums bleed. So you can ask a patient, do your gums bleed anywhere? And the best thing to do is take these little TP Easy Picks because they're very soft and they stimulate bleeding when there's infection in the gum. So if you use them between the teeth, especially the molars, which is the hardest areas to clean, and you go in and out or you ask the patient to do this themselves and they go in and out at the gum line and see if they taste bleeding or they see bleeding or look at the little brush and see if you see a little bit of red or pink, that is a sign of active gum disease. They need to see the dentist. They need to be, and and certainly you are capable of treating and evaluating their gut microbiome and their diet. And that way you'll integrate the concepts of a healthy dental environment as well as a healthy gut and diet. So sometimes we floss, right? And we may floss the same spot because let's say there's some meat stuck or something like that. And then we, we floss the second time or the third time and then there's blood. Would you... Yes. Here's, here's the problem from what I hear you telling me. Okay. You floss your teeth between the contact and you're scrubbing up and down and you really are aggressive. So you really get under the gum, right? That's the worst thing you can do. <laughs> you never floss under the gum. Every hygienist will tell you that to to floss under the gum. But if you floss under the gum and you're flossing aggressively, like sawing back and forth, you're going to cut the gum. You're going to make it bleed. Okay. If there's infection, it will bleed. But if there's no infection, you'll cut the gum and you'll make it bleed. And every time you'll continue to do that, that little cleft that's forming will heal to a cleft and it'll make bacteria and food particles accumulate in this little defect in the gum that you created because you cut the gum repeatedly. Okay. That's why in, at the gum tooth margin between the teeth, you only want to use these little TP soft little brushes and floss, but only floss the contacts in the side of the root, but never go under the gr- gum scraping and cutting the gum tissue. So, so that's why... You keep doing it and it starts to bleed because you cut the gum. 
Okay. Um, wow. that's, that was really helpful. And I'll, again, put all of that in the notes. Um, let's talk a little bit about cavitations. Um, you know, okay. in general, uh, you know, again, lately people have been doing these holistic checks. Um, some people do 3D, um, I guess, checks on the mouth. Are there other ways? There was one client of mine that mentioned that he was doing these, I don't even know what type of, um, I guess, pictures or things they are, but you check the different holes and if there's any like bacteria growing. Um, Do you recommend that for people that have, you know, that have persistent um, issues of health um, and then they've worked on the gut, they worked on diet, but they've had maybe their wisdom teeth pulled, their root canals done. Um, Is there a test? Do you know what test I'm talking about? And should people- there is a test in um, a, a device called the Cavitat, I believe. I can't remember. Th- there are a couple letters that go after that. It's in Germany. I don't think it's been approved by the FDA for the United States yet. It's a newer version that looks at frequencies and heat, and it may give you an indication if there's inflammation in the area. I will tell you this, though. Um, I'm very controversial, so somebody is going to scream and yell, but- <laughs> Let's see how gentle I want to put this. <laughs> Cavitations are all of a sudden being diagnosed everywhere. And I don't think cavitations are everywhere. Okay. I think that it is an overdiagnosed disease, which is a true disease, by the way, and must be treated if it's a true di- cavitation. But here's what can be happening. When a tooth is extracted, and if it's extracted correctly, and it's cleaned out correctly, and it heals without any incident, it may not remineralize completely. And it may not remineralize to the, cons- to the, the uh, density of the surrounding bone. Okay. It is not infected. It is not inflamed. It's just not as dense. If you take an x-ray and an untrained eye looks at it, it may show as a shadow appearing to be something there. Well, there may be, but there are individual dentists that will see a, a radiolucency, this grayish area, and will say, you have a cavitation. I need to treat it come in for this surgery. If you don't have this surgery, you can have serious complications. All of that is true, but it may not be a cavitation. And if you don't have a good dental and medical history to determine what happened in that area, and if you don't do a biopsy to see if there is actual inflammation, tissue breakdown, bacterial or microbial growth, and it's only demineralization, you don't have to go into the area, do the procedure, and charge several thousand dollars to treat a non-cavitation cavitation. I think it's fraud. If the dentist knew that it was not a cavitation and he treated it, I'm not saying it's done frequently, but I think that's the potential there. I think that cavitations, unfortunately, in the general traditional dental world are ignored. And that's a huge problem. But I think that methods to determine if there's an active infection, like doing a little punch biopsy to see if there's fluid, 
figuring out what cells there are. And even if there is a cavitation, you must do a biopsy of that tissue. How about if it's malignant tissue and you don't do a biopsy? You won't know that it's malignant. You have to take, if you're removing necrotic tissue from the human body, you should biopsy it, and especially if you think there is some kind of growth that you don't understand. So it's just not a cut and dry type of procedure. There are some other techniques that, that, that supposedly can identify the inflammation um, in the area, and that is helpful. But once you enter the area, if there is healthy bone, it's just not dense. If there's healthy bone and there's no soft material or fluid, you don't have to go through another procedure to make the bone more dense because it's not pathogenic. It's not medically necessary. And I think that's important. I hope I clarified that situation. Yeah, now, you, you totally. And root canals are another issue too. And that is when a root canal is done, I am not a proponent of root canals, by the way, for the most part. I think there may be a good situation where root canals can be done. For example, a front tooth in your mouth, you get hit by a baseball and you break the tooth in half and there's just the root left, but it's a perfectly healthy tooth. If there's no disease in the nerve at this point and there's no infection in the bone, a well-done root canal utilizing a laser to literally kill the microscopic bacteria and use materials that really can seal the tubules very well today, then that root canal may be very successful going forward. But if that tooth is infected and there's active inflammation and infection pouring out the root of the tooth, and especially if there's more than one root like upper bicuspids, the molars, upper molars have three roots, lower molars have two roots. Um, it gets extremely complicated, especially if the roots are not straight, if they have angles to them. In those situations, I think it is more predictable and healthy to remove the tooth, clean out the socket correctly, and so that you don't develop a cavitation, and then do an implant that is an artificial root in the bone that supports the structure of a, a new tooth, but it will be an artificial tooth. The implant material is also critical. Today, we know that titanium implants and titanium alloys leach titanium ions into the bone structure and create a cytokine reaction and can create, can create systemic problems. Zirconia type implants, which is a different type of implant, um, have much, much less influence on the immune system, and they're much healthier alternatives, and they actually can look better than titanium alloy implants. So complicated questions, but I think that these problems need to be diagnosed properly. And you mentioned a 3D x-ray. The 3D x-ray, the cone beam CT scan, actually can allow the dentist to look at that tooth area like you're turning a ball in your hand to look at every corner of the area to see if bone is breaking down. This is part of the diagnosis, but it's not the total diagnosis. It doesn't still say that there is fluid and infection in the bone. You have to go into the area, 
to identify it. One question I have in terms of the root canal is if you're able to save part of the root and that tooth um, and on a different part of the tooth than just your front teeth, why wouldn't you try to save that tooth? And I get it. It's a lot more complicated. The roots are different. Logically, my brain is just wondering, well, why would I just kind of give up on the tooth and just put in a fake tooth? Um, why, Why do you think that? The predictability of the 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 dentist or endodontist who's a specialized dentist that just does root canals to completely completely remove the pathogenic bacteria and completely seal the tubules is of question that's the problem and some of the research suggests it never can be done a hundred percent and the question is how much disease can the immune system deal with before it is more compromised and creates other systemic issues? And I don't think that that's a question that is easily answered. So yes, you could try to do that, but let's say you do that on an upper molar that has three roots and one is abscess and the other two aren't, but you have to have the root canal in all three three roots and you have it done. And 10 years later or seven years later, it starts to swell and there's pain. When you press here, um, you're going to either do a new root canal or you're going to extract the tooth. Some people do another root canal. Some people extract the tooth. And let's say seven years has gone by. Well, you have had seven years of chronic systemic inflammation. It just doesn't happen once or twice. It's, again, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Do you have other chronic diseases? Do you have gut issues? Do you have all other elements that can be causing chronic disease in your body? And now this failing root canal, which has been failing for seven years, you just didn't know it yet, is contributing to that overload of toxicity in your body. It's not an easy question. And that is why it's so controversial. And you'll get a lot of phone calls. No one knows my phone number, but you'll get a lot of phone calls. I mean, it is a difficult situation. The mouth is a very critical thing. The secret is to have a healthy mouth and to maintain a healthy mouth so you don't need a root canal or you don't need an extraction. But, you know, that's Pollyanna's talking. That's not going to happen in the real world. Things happen, life happens, and you have to treat it. I think what makes Just like me. I mean, I think what makes this whole oral health um, a little bit harder, it makes sense what you're saying. It's just we're so in the dark with oral health that we trust our dentist or whoever we're going to, to give us the right treatment, right? That's why so many of us have amalgams in our mouth. We would never think it was going to cause us heavy metal toxicity, mercury toxicity, Um, And so there's not a lot of pushback that we give to our dentist. I almost think of it as when we go to fix a car and when we don't know much about the insides of a car, we trust our mechanic, but sometimes they're not necessarily legit or they're looking at the wrong things. And so some of these doctors that are recommending um, cavitation surgeries, that maybe it's not even a cavitation. I mean, how do we know to find the right dentist, um, to do the right procedures? Do we always get second checks? I mean, how do we go through this process when we really don't know much about it? It's a great question. 
second opinions are always good. And if the first dentist you're seeing and you say, I want another opinion, will you send these x-rays to Dr. So-and-so and they balk or they have an attitude, you know, you don't want to see this guy anymore. A dentist should be willing to have their work looked at by other professionals of their caliber. Okay. I mean, you're not going to have a veterinarian look at your mouth, right? It has to be a dentist that knows what you're talking about. There are several ways to find a community of biologically oriented dentists by looking at two different websites, the IABDM.org and the IAOMT.org websites have pages where you as a layperson can go put your zip code in and they will show you that all of a sudden they'll pop up the dentists in your zip code area that are members. Now they're not, that's not a guarantee. They're great dentists. At least they're thinking biologically and they've taken the time to become members of these organizations. It's a good start. Word of mouth is certainly a great uh, uh, means, but you don't know because you don't know because you don't know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, can just tell you, you, you have to be able to question the guy in a white jacket or the gal in a white coat because they are not the ones that have all the right answers. I know this from personal experience. We can have a very interesting discussion about my cancer. I was given three to six months to live three years ago, but I rejected chemotherapy and I've created unconventional cancer protocols, and I am thriving today. I'm not cured. I'm not in remission, but I am thriving. And I work with a conventional oncologist who understands my research to do what I'm doing. You, you as an individual patient, need to do some research. There is great information about cavitations. If you look at um, a, um, a source called pubmed.gov, it is a resource, a depository, well, not a depository, but it is a resource of medical papers from all over the world for the last 50 plus years of any subject you can think of. Sometimes it's not the whole paper, it's just the abstract. Sometimes it's so complicated you can't understand it, but it'll give you an idea of what's being studied and how things are treated. All you have to do is put your keywords in and all these papers that relate to that keyword will pop up. You can do some research and find some knowledge and find some biologically oriented dentists and take that information to them and say, look, I'm interested. When you're educating yourself like that, a biologically oriented dentist will appreciate your degree of, of, of um, competency and proactiveness, and they will certainly try to work with you. I recommend some of my clients to use those websites. And even within <clears throat> the website, like you said, not all of the holistic dentists, you know, are as, I guess, um, progressive as you. So, I mean, it is, I think it is a little bit of the recommendations and it's hard to also listen to someone that is holistic, but that still recommends grains and, you know, fruits um, in a, you know, I have some still hair still in my head, but it, it, I am so aggravated with the people. I don't think anybody that's listening to this is a vegan, but I am so aggravated with people, well-known physicians that are 
declaring vegan is the way to go. It's the only way to get healthy. If you eat red meat, you're going to get colon cancer. I mean, they don't understand what happened in two and a half million years of our species. We are carnivores, but we do eat plants. So we're omnivores, but we lean towards carnivore. We have a digestive system that leans towards that. The um, the the archaeology and the anthropology uh, looking at remains has shown that we have used tools to crack open skulls of animals. Nitrogen testing has shown that our protein has primarily been animal-based protein, not plant-based protein. And all of a sudden, we have to eat vegan processed foods and grains. Once grains started, celiac disease got created. There was a a paper that was written where it was documented several thousands of years ago, the first celiac patient, because they were eating grains. It's amazing. So I know, I get you. I get it. You and I are probably very few in number in this world today. I know. And it's unfortunate. It's so simple. If you were to just pull yourself out of mainstream um, education and recommendations, it's quite obvious, right? The way that our ancestors ate um, and how we should ideally eat, how the rainbow is a very new concept. I mean, even several hundreds of years ago, people didn't have the luxury to have abundance of vegetables and fruits in all forms and colors and all genetically modified versions. And we're sicker than ever. And that's the funny thing, right? So um, it's, if you see it, you see it, it's very easy to um, see, but it's unfortunate. The, the, I guess, recommendations in the space, it's just incorrect. um, And people are getting ill and you know, oral health is just on the decline as well. I mean, it's normal to have cavities when kids are young now, right? And it's normal to have um, all these issues with our teeth. And it's, it's just normal. And it's just unfortunate, because it doesn't have to be. Um, One question I wanted to ask you, I forgot is that there are some carnivore clients I get that say, all of a sudden being on a meat-based diet, their teeth in general are better, but they're starting to get more tartar behind their lower teeth. So mm-hmm. why is that? Why does that happen to some people that are starting to eat a meat-based, heavier, saturated fat diet? A couple things. They may not be getting enough K2. Mm. So that, was that is thought. a very possible situation. I know in my own personal environment, my mouth, I used to develop heavy tartar on the inside of my lower front teeth years ago. When I started carnivore, I never really thought about it so much. But when I really got under, I mean, when I started my um, cancer protocols in paleo, I didn't think about it so much. But once I got into carnivore, and I really understood the importance of animal-based nutrients from organs and vitamin K2 being critical to take calcium out of the soft tissues and put it into the bones, I hardly ever have tartar in my mouth. Hardly ever. Um, And I don't get my teeth cleaned every day, by the way. I mean, I brush and floss, but I don't get I don't go to a dentist to have that my, my teeth cleaned every three months or whatever. It's not necessary, but that's another story for another day. Um, 
I think K2 could be a factor. The other thing is how carnivore are they? Because are they eating oxalate foods? Are they getting a little bit of spinach? Are they getting a little bit of chocolate? Are they doing some things? Uh, are they taking turmeric, which is extremely high in oxalates? Are they putting into their body some of these chemicals that literally crystallize and cause calcium deposits? But I think K2 could be a big factor. And I take a K2 um, MK7 product, and I take quite a bit. I take 300 micrograms a day. That's interesting. Vitamin, um, D, was... vitamin D is also another factor. So we need to know what the vitamin 25 hydroxy vitamin D is. We need to know what their diet looks like. We need to make sure that they're eating organs to get all the nutrients. We need to have we need to have a good water source of trace minerals uh, and not filtered water where they add three or four synthetic electrolytes. I'm talking about natural spring waters. Um, I drink what's called Soleil in the morning. It's uh, something that you make by yourself. Take some Himalayan salt crystals, create a supersaturated liquid and um, dilute it with regular water. You do it every day. You get some trace minerals, better hydration. All this is a factor, I think. But I think if there was one element, it could be vitamin K2. And I agree with you. I mean, that is some of the recommendations I give. Um, I looked into the Rotterdam study. I think it showed that the people that, so if you have tartar buildup on the back of your teeth, it could be a correlation with cardiovascular disease. And so these people in the study, they took for, I think, seven to eight years, they took vitamin K2 and their, um, I think that it was the risk. Um, they went down like 56% or something like that. Um, and so, I mean, I agree. I think, um, that's always been my go-to is a K2, but you just can't measure it really well. Um, I guess yeah, you can. they have less um, tartar on the back of their teeth, but yeah, I think that's a good recommendation. And that is interesting because I do think there are carnivores that eat certain plant foods that are high in oxalates. And I didn't think about the calcium buildup from that. And that is interesting. So that might be actually it. So, yeah, I think most of those, I'm, I'm not sure I'd have to look at it, but I think that that is a um, oxalate, calcium oxalate um, or other mineral oxalates that are depositing in the plaque. Now the plaque is there. Maybe the plaque is unhealthy to start with. So it's going to mineralize even faster. And of course the gut microbiome has to be looked at, but the one element, if I were to really say, are you getting enough of, I would say vitamin K2, but of course you, you need that vitamin D3 also level. Okay. I'm always hesitant about supplementing vitamin D. Um, it's mainly because, you know, we test for a different version of vitamin D and then we take a horm us like a hormonal version of vitamin D. So I've always been kind of hesitant about that. Um, what are your thoughts with vitamin D? Well, um, obviously the best thing is to go out in the sun and only go out in the sun so that you get just slightly pink and then come back in. Um, that would be the ideal, uh, vitamin D3 and you get vitamin D in a variety of certain foods, not vitamin D3, but you get vitamin D2. Right. Um, so I'm not sure sardines, I think egg yolks, I can't remember the food. Salmon is a huge do. one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that could be a good factor. I would measure the 25 hydroxy vitamin D because that is the inactive storage form of vitamin D3. The active form is, the half-life is just a few hours. So it's not the best way to measure vitamin D storage, 
So the 25 hydroxy vitamin D is a much longer half-life. So that's a good way to measure it. But there was an interesting paper that was published about a year ago that showed for vitamin D3 or 25 hydroxy vitamin D3 or the inactive form to convert to the active form, you have to have a good diversity of microbes in the gut. You have to have a higher alpha diversity to support that, which is very interesting. So I think, you know, that we are such an integrated machine. There are so many things that work. We try to take a very important element, identify it and supplement that element. That's why I don't really like supplements, but I do do vitamin D3 because I don't, I can't physically be in the sun much um, just because of where I am right now. But, but for the most part, I think that we will get the nutrients that we need in animal-based nose-to-tail eating and drinking good spring water with good amounts of trace minerals. I think that's the secret. If we can create a secret in life, I think that's the secret. We need to have efficient exercise and do all the other things that everybody talks about, but that diet is critical and that gut microbiome, we need to develop alpha diversity that is way up there way up there. My alpha diversity is in the 98th percentile. And that's amazing. And that's amazing because of what I have right now. And it's only because I take a lot of time to create a healthy microbiome. We also need to have good glycemic variability. We have to understand we have to have excellent insulin sensitivity and be able to metabolize our glucose when we were eating carbs correctly without big spikes and we have to be able to switch to lipolysis when when we need to and go back and forth with our cravings. All of this is really an important element um, to good health. I think that's really good. I mean, um, I, I'm on the same page with you. I work with my clients to work on their gut health in order to absorb the nutrients from the meats and break them down. And then from there, I am not a fan of over supplementing, right? So a lot of my supplements are around healing the gut, right? So whether it's probiotics or digestive enzymes or hydrochloric acid, but it's not specific um, vitamins because you should be obtaining that. Oh, from your food. I, I totally agree. And when it comes to digestive enzymes, I've recently switched to pure desiccated pancreas because it has all the digestive enzymes we need with nothing else added and none of the fillers. You know, there's a company called Ancestral Supplements, I believe, mm-hmm. and they only deal with um, freeze-dried, dehydrated, grass-fed, grass-finished New Zealand cattle and they have a pancreas product that I have a client that said is a game changer for her um, because she's so sensitive and it's worked extremely well. I think we can get a lot of the stuff from these organs. That's interesting. I wonder if all the digestive enzymes still survive once the animal is desiccated. I, I always wonder that. And then also, there are some people that are their immune system is so heightened that even taking any organ supplements, um, their histamine response is just out there. So it, it's very bio-individual. That's what I would say. But it may be, but what this client of mine has said is that she has a problem if she takes the capsule, but if she opens the capsule and takes the powder, no problems whatsoever. So the capsule could be the problem element because you're getting a lot of capsule um, in that individual. And of course, if it's not 
well desiccated. If it's heat desiccated or whatever, and they're vegetable caps, now it's a, a, a totally different story. And well, thank you so much for your time. I mean, it seems like eating an animal-based diet, um, working on the gut, and then making sure that if you have any periodontal disease that you also work on that, but otherwise, you know, using the mechanisms you mentioned with the teeth. Are you using spore-based probiotics? Uh, yes, uh, that's one of many, um, but mm-hmm. it's normally that, and then sometimes uh, with some Saccharomyces boulardii, and then the other... Yeah, Saccharomyces boulardii has yeah. been, yeah. yeah so I have a, a little idea that you might want to try. Okay. Um, if you don't want to mention brands, that's fine, but take the spore-based probiotic okay. and put it in maybe a teaspoon of water or something, could be Himalayan salt water or whatever, um, and... Before you're going to bed, after you've cleaned your mouth, no matter how you're going to do it, whatever you're going to use, just before you go to bed, take that liquid, teaspoon or so of liquid with the spore base probiotic and swish it in your mouth. Swish it, gargle it, and then swallow it. Mm. What has been shown is that this has not been proven, but what has been proven is spores are attracted to biofilm. If you have a healthy dental biofilm, those spores may well attach to the biofilm around your mouth and teeth, and it may improve the alpha diversity of the dental plaque. Interesting. Maybe, maybe not, but maybe. But even if it doesn't, you'll swallow it and it'll get into your gut even faster because it doesn't have a capsule to dissolve. And of course the spores are the only thing that's resistant to the stomach acid. So all the others have great metabolites that are really critical, but this is going to germinate in the gut. So you might want to try that um, when you go to bed for a month or so and see how your mouth feels. I think it's fantastic. I That's use it interesting. All the time. Um, sometimes I have my clients do like coconut pulls or the coconut oil pulls, but um, sometimes I have young clients that uh, they their parents will open up the capsule because the uh, spore based probiotic like one is too strong, and so they'll take half to put it in yes. their drink. So, and I've I've thought you know just logically, well, if it will help your gut microbiome, I wonder if it'll help your oral microbiome. And I thought about the swishing too, and so yeah, that's yeah, really I cool think that's that a good idea. I think it's a good idea. And also, do you use colostrum? Um, I don't often. Instead, we use I use IgG only because a yeah, lot of yeah, my yeah. clients yeah. are intolerant to dairy. So otherwise, I would. Um, but I think immunoglobulins are just as beneficial without the risk of dairy intolerance. And so that's why I don't use colostrum often. Colostrum is interesting only because the bovine colostrum has extremely low levels of lactose. And for the extremely okay. sensitive dairy patient, Yeah, you may still have a problem, but for the majority of lactose intolerant patients, they won't have a problem with colostrum. And there's so many other biologically active chemicals in colostrum. And several studies have shown that colostrum literally permeates the mucosal tissue, gets systemic immediately. So it's almost like nitroglycerin under the tongue. You swish with colostrum and then swallow it. And colostrum has an interesting flavor, almost like ice cream. Um, dehydrated ice cream, actually. So you could, this is my new gimmick. I haven't tried it yet, but I'm going to try colostrum with my spore-based probiotic, rinsing, swishing and gargling, and then swallowing it um, at night. And I'm going to get the benefit of the gastrointestinal benefit, as well as the mucosal benefit, uh, soft tissue benefit, 
um, superimposed on that, I think it's a great idea. So how long would you swish for? And then how long, how many days? Oh, you, you know, seconds. Yeah. Okay. Just once you code it, it's already there and it's going to um, infiltrate the mucosal tissue right away. Um, if it's going to attach to the biofilm, it's like a magnet. It's going to attach right away. And whatever it does or doesn't do, you're going to swallow and get inside your gut, which is where you want it to be anyhow. It's just that it's going to have an extra benefit in the oral cavity. And talking about trying to improve the oral cavity, I think, um, you know, colostrum is a huge benefit. It's just a huge benefit. If you look at some of the research, I just wrote a paper that I published this past weekend on colostrum, and I'm quite impressed with the research, even for cancer, which is an interesting side um, area that I have some interest in. Yeah, I will have to bring you back to talk about your cancer protocol and what you're doing and how you're healing with that. Because I mean, I do get many emails about cancer patients needing help and what their diet should be and stuff. So I'm sure a lot of people will be interested. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Well, I hope it was informational. I think we talk about nutrition and wellness. We talk about stress and sleep, and then we don't talk a lot about oral hygiene. And I think it's really important, um, especially because like you said, there's so many people that have some type of you know, teeth imbalances, gum imbalances. And so I think starting the conversation, even if basically you've tried a lot of stuff and you're still not fully healing, it's something that you should probably look into. I think that it could be the critical element that's missing. And that's the last piece of the puzzle. I, I concur. I would say some of my clients would agree with you. So thank you again for your time. Uh, where can people find you? Um, if sure. you even do consults, where can people find you? Sure. I do uh, consults. Um, when I have our one-to-one consults, I do a 12-week coaching program, which is one-to-one. I, like I said, I do uh, questionnaire, food journal, dental x-rays. It's all part of what I do to make sure I'm getting a better picture of who I'm talking with. Um, I'm at, uh, on my website is www.drdannenberg.com, which is D-R-D-A-N-E-N-B-E-R-G. There are so many blogs, over 500 blogs, I guess I've written in the past, but of course, uh, they're more updated as you get more recent and they're all downloadable. You can look at those. There's a bunch of PDFs that you can look at. I even have my detailed cancer protocols, my detailed unconventional cancer protocols in a PDF that you could download with all kinds of links to all the stuff that I do. Nothing is hidden. Yes. Thank you. I mean, I looked into your blogs and um, you have a lot of information out there. So that's, and you even have one on cavitation. So I will link yes. um, to your, yes. to your information there. So thank you again so much for joining me and we'll have you on again to talk about your cancer protocol. Thank you. Have thank a great day. You too. Thank you so Thanks. much. Take care. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. I hope that Dr. Al Dannenberg really shed some light into oral health and why it's so important to manage oral health care as well as your gut microbiome. I will have him on to talk about his cancer protocol, but I will also have the link to the protocol in the show notes. Make sure to work with a experienced practitioner before you do anything with your health. Let me know if you try any of the teeth care protocols that Dr. Al talked about in our interview. I know for sure I'll be using some of the Soleil water as well as the spore probiotics to swish around the mouth for a maybe cleaner oral microbiome. Both of those I am such big fans with already. All right, guys, you know the drill. Make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies and your oral health because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys next week. Take care. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.